Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Simran Dougal, uh, who's the sales manager east of Webflow. Simran had earlier worked with companies like Docebo, uh, NLS Technologies and Upchain. Uh, Simran has done a master's in business and entrepreneurship from the University of Waterloo. A big thanks to Maggie Hort for Webflow for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Simran. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So, um, so you know, uh, I've been into sales, business development, and partnerships, but I, you know, we, you don't have a lot of women uh, in sales. But how did you make your way uh, in, into this world of sales? Mm, great question. Um, I think a little bit by accident. <laughs> I think a lot of us often do. Um, yeah. Just a bit of backstory. You know, I started my career out of uh, university. I was a bank teller at a big Canadian mm-hmm. bank. Um, and was really trying to identify my next move. This was something I felt really temporary. I was exploring grad school options. Um, I was really trying to carve a path for myself out of a sociology and economics degree. Um, and at the time, there was a CEO of a local hardware tech company that would come in and, and often do his banking. And he essentially at one point just asked me if I was looking for a new opportunity as he was building out his small but mighty sales team. Nice. Um and so I, I made the leap. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was really learning on the fly. But it was really here that I got some pretty uh, deep insight into what it looks like to really uh, go to market with a company. We, I mean, we everything was all in one building. So we had everything from design to engineering, product, shipping, sales, marketing, finance, planning, and all of that. Um, and it was really there. This was my early 20s. I, I really wanted to do this for myself one day. I wanted to lead or potentially found a company of my own. And while I was learning so much about sales, uh, about the preparedness that you need when running deal cycles, um, the mental resiliency that's required, the persistence, um, this grad school thought was not um, sort of leaving my brain. It was lingering. And so a few months later, I found myself, uh, like you said, at at the University of Waterloo for a a master's in business entrepreneurship uh, and technology program. really with the intention of coming out a founder or, or a CEO. Um, but it was really there that I discovered that I had uh, a blossoming skill set that I was taking for granted. And that was one to be able to see a piece of technology and realize a solution out of it or understanding ways to commercialize it. So in the program, we spend time you know, with early stage startups or we do entrepreneurship stints um, and and it was really there that I realized that my path to maybe one day leading a company would be through sales. So uh, upon graduating, I joined a, a fast-growing um, company in, in Toronto, and that's how I started my my SaaS sales career. Mm, interesting. And, and you know, obviously, how did you you know get the opportunity to work for Webflow? You know, what 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 excited you about Webflow? Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, realizing there's been, uh, I think, a lot of hard work that's gone into my career growth, but quite a bit of serendipity as well. So uh, fast forwarding a few years, uh, I was coming off of my mat leave with my daughter, who's three years old, uh, and I was really looking for a new opportunity. I had spent um, quite a bit of time in sort of true to form enterprise B2B SaaS, and I was exploring PLG and, and upmarket motions at PLG companies. And so through a few fateful events, I actually got connected to Maggie, who you referenced earlier, uh, who's my director. And she was just joining Webflow to really build out 
um, a sales team, uh, and we connected uh, and right away knew that I that I wanted to be part of such an incredible team. Uh, so joined actually as an account executive, so as an individual contributor, and then moved on to the leadership team last year. Interesting, you know. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier before in the call, you know, I was uh, I've always been into, into tech startups. I've, I've gone from you know zero to one a couple of times. Uh, and important to understand, you know, especially when it comes to uh, an early stage startup, uh, you know, should, mm-hmm. when should a founder hire head of sales, or do you think you know he should hire like a, a like a sales executive, and then should should he hire a head of sales? What what is what is your viewpoint on that? Mm, he or she. He or she. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's a great question. Uh, it's a great question. You know, I've, I've been at a few sort of pre or post series A companies. I've been able, you know, had the opportunity of advising to some really early stage companies. Um, and I actually think this is a mistake I see happening often where a founder, specifically when they're going, let's say from zero to one, or they have a couple, you know, founding team members where they're looking to really either offload that responsibility. And they're thinking, I'll do this to, you know, a CRO or a head of sales, um, and why I think this is is really challenging is first and foremost, a founder should really be that OG, OG salesperson. Um, they should be living and breathing the product, the solution. They should deeply understand the customers they're building for. Um, but I think where it gets problematic to bring in a head of sales or CRO is that understandably so, these individuals want to be very strategic. They want to be high level. They want to understand how to really grow and scale the team versus really get in the trenches and roll up their sleeves and and do some of that work. So where I've seen, you know, some success is when you bring on an individual who's willing to be an individual contributor. So an account executive in the field, who's maybe had a couple of years of closing experience, um, potentially at a stage of company um, that's as small as that, or, or something a little bit bigger to bring some, you know, experience with. Um, Because these individuals are really going to have to wear multiple hats. They're going to have to be a little bit of a BDR, a little bit of an account executive, a little bit of a CSM, and really actually bring feedback back into the business. From there, once you've really established product market fit with a core ICP, not just the entire market, but really that core ICP, and you're ready to actually scale those playbooks, scale those teams is really when, you know, I would suggest bringing in a head of sales. Mm-hmm. Got it. Interesting. And uh, especially, you know, when you're looking to hire someone, you know, uh, what characteristics do you do? You, uh, does a high performing sales hire have and you know how how do you how do you judge that you know in like you know one hour or two hour interview Mm, mm, my gosh it's hard (laughs) Uh, i think the the thing of course um is that salespeople know how to sell themselves um you know uh so it's 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 tricky and i think being able to craft a really strong um uh, hiring process is important i'm happy to to dive into that as well um uh in this in this session um but I think some of the the high performing characters or the characteristics of high performing AEs, I think there's certainly some some fundamental uh, pieces, you know, and it really depends again on this, the the growth stage that you're at. But individuals that have potentially done it before, things like closing, attainment, you know, being able to drive a complex deal cycle, um, you know, strong discovery skills. These are really really important for for high performing AEs, being organized, being diligent, things like that. But one key attribute that's hard to screen for. And I'm happy to talk about how I do, but one that I screen for that I think is is something that we see across our high-performing reps, even at Webflow, is curiosity. It's something I come back to time and time again. 
Um, and this just isn't with prospects. Of course, it's incredibly important to be curious with your prospects. So deeply understanding their pain, the business impact of solving that pain, who else needs to be involved to be able to get a deal across the line, things like that. Um, these things are obviously very important in building strong business cases. Um, but uh, a strong AEs are able to pull that strong curiosity, even just past a discovery call or past the, you know, the, the first couple of calls, they pull this in through the entire deal cycle, but they also pull that through internally. So they, you know, they get really curious about why are we building the product the way we're building it for this particular audience? Why did we, you know, potentially, you know, roll out this new process? How can we make our processes better to not only help me as an AE, but potentially the entire team and, and really be able to step back or zoom out? Um, so those are the individuals that we really see either progressing within the business, potentially uh, up segment or, you know, into leadership. Mm. Super, super interesting. And uh, especially, you know, if if you're trying to judge somebody in a, in a in a one hour call you know mm, mm-hmm. uh, how how do you judge somebody's curiosity or do you think you know you should have multiple number of conversations with that person to to yeah. you know get to that uh, to understand that characteristic yeah so yeah you know at webflow we have uh, several rounds we try to make uh, the we understand this is a really big investment for candidates we don't like to draw it out too too long but to your point really gives the ability for not only the hiring manager or the or the vp but even peers that this individual might be working with cross functional partners that this candidate could be working with to really you know uh, have the ability of of digging into a lot of these key attributes i think Curiosity comes in a couple forms of the way I've been able to screen it. <clears throat> First and foremost, are they asking me questions? You know, are they asking questions? Um, are they asking to maybe speak to a peer that would be sitting in seat and understanding their experience of how they've been successful? What are the biggest challenges? If I could fix one thing at Webflow today as a manager, what would it be? Um, and really trying to, you know, do their due diligence. Um, uh yeah, I think that's really asking me questions. And I think the other piece is as we're, you know, we do this one um, uh, meeting or, or one of the stages of our interview process is what we call a chronological interview. And this is really a time where we deep dive into their resume um, and really understand kind of why they made uh, the moves that they did and really try to understand the patterns of their career. And if they're, you know, moving from role to role or company to company simply because, you know, a recruiter reached out. Um, and if so, maybe it was a really, really standout recruiter and, and it was a really compelling case. But if they're simply just making that move for more money, or were they doing really strong diligence about the product, about where this company sat in the overall landscape? Were they a market leader? Were they sort of an underdog that was looking to become a market leader? So really just that curiosity that comes through in the moves that they've made and the way they ask me questions um, are a couple of ways that we screen for it. Hmm, got interesting. And Simon, I just wanted to follow up. Do you think would you hire a, a job hopper? Uh, you know, who's who's hopped? I don't know, ten jobs mm-hmm. in five years. Or do you think that's a red flag for you? Good question. Um, I spent a lot of my time in 2022 uh, in interviews, and so this is something that came up a lot, candidly, with um, my my peers or or with our uh, really wonderful talent team. Um, I think objectively, you know, it can be a bit of a red flag when you see an AE, you know, thinking about an AE takes, you know, at least three to four months to ramp at a role. So they're spending time onboarding for the first year, you're sitting in an, a ramp quota. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going from company to company after a year, year and two months, year, year and two months, you're just kind of moving on. It can be a red flag. 
That being said, if this has been someone who's been referred to me, if it's someone that's showing a lot of interest and a lot of curiosity in Webflow and and our growing team, I think I always look to really understand and potentially fact check that with their references or or any kind of back channel that I might have access to of really what was happening. You know, we're seeing, especially in today's market, a lot of changes for, you know, individuals that might have started at a job five months ago and and unfortunately have had to, to depart the business. So really trying to understand was this a company-wide thing? Was this, you know, maybe maybe you recognized you made a move that really wasn't for you and you were self-aware enough to make the move onwards and really trying to understand that trajectory. Um, but I'd say that, you know, a, a majority of the people that we even have on the, the team at Webflow are likely not hoppers. Got mm-hmm. interesting, and uh, spe- especially you know uh, in early stage startup, you know a lot of founders uh, are not able to get the right talent. Uh, uh, so you know, do you think uh, should should you uh, should a founder hire a a B player, uh, and then you know once he gets that funding, should he you know look at setting the bar higher, or do you think he should just wait it out and find that A player? I don't know. Well, what do you oh. think? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's so tough, right? Because I think I'd love to be able to say, yeah, only hire A players, only stack your bench with the best possible people. But I think uh, there's something to be said about the best possible person at the time mm. and and based on the circumstance. You might be going from zero to one. You might not have a lot of credibility to attract the top tier talent that is well-trained, who's done this before, who's willing to take a bet on your company. Maybe you as a founder don't have a track record of, of yeah. you know building successful businesses. So um, that's, I think, a really, really big challenge. So it's, can you find the best person for yourself at the time, right? Maybe this is someone that has has, like I said earlier, has some closing experience, really willing to take the bet on the company, willing to work really hard and, and kind of invest themselves in this mission. Um, so there has to be some sort of alignment. I think what a player means when you're going from zero to one versus when you're going from, you know, that your 50th higher to your, you know, 51st higher, those mean very different things. I think even as, you know, when you're in a company that's in high growth, I think, you might be constrained by the budget that you have to, to attract uh, talent at a certain comp level. Um, you know, th- think of the market even a year, year and a half ago with the great resignation, there's a massive pool of talent that was en- entering the market, making it highly competitive for people to be able to attract top talent. Um, I think in those early stage days, when we think of what a player means, I think it is people that have done it before that understand general playbooks and those sales fundamentals. So you're not teaching them what is an opportunity, what is a lead, how to have that first sales conversation. So someone who's really willing, you know, like you said, a founder that's hiring their first, you know, sales, uh, sales rep, had they done this before? Had they been trained maybe at a company with with a particular playbook? It doesn't have to be the one that you end up employing, but just that they have that general sales fundamental. I think once you're in a growth stage where you sort of identified uh, a, a play in the market that's working, really being able to bring in that, you know, a, a player or, or sort of top tier talent who's done it before that, again, you're not teaching for the very first time is super integral. I think once you've figured it out a little bit more and you're now really scaling teams, it kind of like gives you the opportunity of opening up um, that pool. And, and I want to be really clear when we say A player versus B player, I think you should have really strong 
insight into what you're looking, the profile of individuals that you're looking to bring into the business. But when I say B players, I mean individuals that might have a bit of a higher ceiling, meaning they might be a little bit more junior in their career. They might not have as much clothing experience, but they're showing a lot of those intangible qualities like, you know, curiosity or grittiness or or ability to to really be self-starters that you can invest in once you have enablement down, once you have onboarding down. Um, who can potentially be, you know, consistent 80 to 90% attainment performers. Um, but that might not be your kind of rock star AEs that are overachieving every single quarter. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14 day free trial. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, you know, especially uh, in 2023, 20, uh, there's been, uh, unfortunately, a lot of, lot of layoffs, but uh, how do you construct the, the hiring process now? And, you know, what, what are some of the key questions, uh, core questions you would ask? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, you know, we spent a lot of time last year interviewing and scaling our teams. Um, and we spent a lot of time actually really recalibrating what the interview process looks like and what's going to be the most effective to, to bringing in the, the best and the brightest uh, for the stage that we were at. So like I said, we have um, this chronological interview that I actually love um, so much because you you get deep understanding um, into their career trajectory. Did they hop around? If so, why did they do that? Really screening for some of these things like curiosity or you know potentially comfort with ambiguity, uh, which is something that uh, especially when you're in high growth phases, is something that you should, you know, uh, be willing to to uh, take on. Um, and so from there, um, we like to expose them as well to other parts of the business. So this is really where we have a series of three interviews, 30 minutes each you're meeting with. Uh, it could be someone in customer success. It could be someone in enablement. It could be somebody in operations um, and each with their sort of core competency area. So screening for things like, can you collaborate with people? Have you done that before? What does operational excellence look like? Do you know how to forecast? Do you know um, how to update Salesforce? Have you used Salesforce before? Things like that. Um, and then the final round is something that um, is just incredible. So we actually, the final round is a two-part session. Um, the first is we ask individuals to pitch something that they love or they're passionate about. Mm. And this is probably my favorite part of the entire uh, uh, entire um, uh, cycle of, of hiring because you get to see how people light up when they're talking about something that they're really passionate about. The hope is that as they join the company, they're equally passionate about Webflow and and yeah. and solving you know the problems that we do for our customers. Um, and we just you know get a bit of an insight into these individuals that we've been sort of interviewing for for a number of of weeks sometimes. The second part is actually a mock discovery call. Um, so they're actually, uh, the panel acts as a, a team of marketing executives. This is a, a core persona that we sell to at Webflow. And they act as a Webflow AE. Um, and so what's really interesting here is, you know, have they done the research? Have they looked at our case studies online? Are they being curious through the discovery cycle? Did they take advantage of the prep session that we offered up to them, you know, ahead of ahead of the call? Um, and here, it's the intention is not for them to know Webflow the best they can, but really how they can show up and and just be really curious um, in a discovery cycle and and sort of land the next meeting. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a lot of information they're happy to dive in. Um, but uh, those are some of the key, the key meetings that help us discern if this is going to be a candidate that's going to be successful here. Mm, kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to understand, especially uh, you, you talked about a mock discovery call, you know, a lot of times uh, the uh, the candidate is not uh, not so well informed about about the company uh, product. Uh, do, do you think an alternative could be to do a mock presentation of, of the company they're currently working with? Or do you think it's, you know, just because uh, somebody is going to join the sales team, they, they should know about the product in and out and do a mock interview, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, they may not n- know the product very well. It just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I heard somewhere that, you know, maybe uh, th- there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, discussion about a debate about whether uh, a mock interview should be about, uh, about the new product that they, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, just wondering, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's a great question. Something that I've, even as an account executive has seen both sides. I've interviewed at companies or gotten at jobs at companies where the idea was to pitch a a solution that we were comfortable with and the solution that we were selling at the time. And then others it's been to really present sort of that company, whether it was a, a, kind of a business case presentation or, or even a discovery call, you know, we make it very clear to the candidate. So first and foremost, we like to prep them as much as possible. And we say that the intention of this session is not to set you up for failure. If anything, it is to set you up to be successful. If you've made it to this point, we deeply believe that you would be a really good fit here at Webflow. These are just some key areas that we really need to dive into to ensure that, you know, you know how to run an effective discovery call. Cause you know, even, for folks that have started in the business that have been successful or candidly not discovery is a key area where we see individuals sort of break down and not be able to, to really grow candidly their, their, you know, sales career specifically here at Webflow. Um, And so the idea is to not actually know the product really well. This is obviously not a demo. There's no, there's no need for them to pull up their screen and show a demo. In fact, we say no slides, like this is simply conversational and it's really trying to understand can they do a good job of being curious? Can they ask us really good questions? You know, and we we send them case studies that are live on our website. Um, we hope that they've asked some really good questions to the interview cycle of who we sell to, the types of companies we sell to. They've often had the opportunity of speaking with an AE and seat as well. Um, and so really the idea is here is can they dig for pain? And can they then pull that pain to some sort of positive business outcome that can land them that next meeting? And the idea is that regardless of the product, you should be able to do this. Yes, there's maybe sets of questions that we can set you up with when you join at the company to really help you get from good to great or great to exceptional. Um, but the idea is not, you know, we do throw a couple curveballs uh, in the mix. Uh, so for anyone listening who's planning on interviewing at Webflow, but the idea is that we're never looking for the correct answer. We're actually looking for how they maybe combat that objection. Right. You know, we we typically ask how is Webflow priced? They would have no idea of knowing this. And so the idea is how do they, do they flounder in that question? Do they get flustered or they say, you know, do they pull back and ask us budget and ask us how we make buying decisions? Um, So candidly, it's less about Webflow and more about the ability for them to be well-researched and prepared and how they sort of are on their feet. Mm, Got it. Got it. Interesting. And, um, and what uh, advice would you give to founders who are looking to onboard uh, the the uh, the first sales rep. Uh, what uh, you know, homework should they do so that you know uh, the onboarding is done perfectly well? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the first and foremost thing is they should know is that this is an evolving process. The way you onboard your very first sales hire is not going to be the way that you onboard your second or your 20th or your 50th. Um, you know, at Webflow, we're very fortunate to have a best in class enablement team that has created an incredible onboarding program for our AEs. Um, but when you're hiring or bringing on that very first sales rep, I think it's so important to spend as much time with the founder as possible. Or so as a founder, spend as much time with that individual. Again, if you've done your job right and been sort of that OG seller, whether or not you have paying customers or not yet, you have sort of deep institutional knowledge, whether it's about the space, if you're a founder that is really passionate about the space, maybe you've worked in it before, maybe you're really passionate just simply about the product and you're actually trying to discover what you know target audiences you're really looking to, to dive into. But there's deep institutional knowledge that lives within that founder. And so really being able to spend time, and this could be you know, one-on-ones, this could be in product meetings, it could be in planning meetings to really understand um, that sort of knowledge from um, the the founder is going to be really critical. I mean, sales is grueling, sales is demanding, and especially yeah. sales at a company where the plays aren't built out, it yeah. can be uh, defeating, <laughs> candidly. Yeah. And so really being able to understand, soak all of that knowledge in and that excitement in is going to be really critical um, to be able to go on and, and you know, have a a successful first sales hire. I think the other thing, and again, this just really depends on um, the stage of company that you're at, even if you're going from zero to one, but if let's say you have a handful of of paying or or maybe unpaid customers that you're working with right now, having that individual spend time with someone in potentially like a support function. So whether it's true support, like technical support, or maybe you have one individual that's sort of a sort of a customer success manager um, in a way of really understanding what are customers saying? What are customers saying as, you know, there's gaps in the product or things that they really love so that um, the sales um, hire can can really soak that in as well. Mm. Got it. And and, and how, how would you measure, a, you know, a sales rep uh, impact? Uh, are there any KPIs or metrics, you know, uh, on which you were, you know, judging? Mm-hmm. Again, I mean, I think, depending on anyone listening, what stage you're at, I think this is going to differ. I I know for me, there's absolutely tangible things that I can measure when I look at an AE's impact in the business. And then there's intangible. And I want to be able to talk about both because I think they're equally um, important. So first and foremost, there there are tangible um, impacts, right? I think one of the benefits of being in sales as hard as it is, um, you know, if you're doing well or not based on your number, you have a quota, you know, whether, and again, if you're early stage, maybe your quota is booking meetings, maybe your quota is running demos, maybe your quota is closing business, right? But regardless, you have some form of quota so you can really understand how you're, how you're performing. Um, so, you know, I think when we think of these, these impacts, there's inputs and outputs. So outputs is, of course, things like attainment, things like, you know, deals move from stage to stage. And then there's inputs, there's how much are we reaching out to prospective customers? Are we doing follow-up emails? Like what are the work, what is the work that we're putting in that we can measure? And we have, you know, several dashboards and reports that we share with AEs that we look as, as, as leaders to be able to really understand if this rep is performing great, what are they doing so that we can replicate that at scale across the field? And if not, or if they're not performing on those outputs, let's go in and see, are they putting in those inputs? If not, we got to get them doing that. But if they are, are they the right inputs? Are they reaching out to the right people? Are they, you know, running deal cycles with the right personas? Um, So I think there's a lot of things around pipe gen and attainment that, that is super candidly easy, especially as a sales manager to be able to manage that performance, right? And really ensure that folks aren't getting off track. 
then there's so many intangible impacts. Um, and we actually just ran a, a sort of team, a company-wide sort of development cycle at Webflow. And I had the opportunity of being able to comment on uh, sort of core behaviors that AEs or, you know, the people on my team um, embody and really can, you know, impact not only positively for the business, but also their team members. And so I think these are things like being able to provide really strong feedback internally. What are you hearing from customers? How can we embed that into our processes or our product? Um, earning customer trust. I think this is, you know, this was uh, a core value for us at Webflow and something that I just think is super important. Are you able to build trust and rapport with your customers to get them to buy and then, you know, get them to buy more, you know, one day to really be able to continue to help them, you know, um, with their problems that they're bringing to us. And then I think mentorship, are you able to take what you're doing and pass that along to your team members? Um, You know, are you able to take plays that are working for you, whether that's how to book new meetings or how to, not negotiate uh, or discount, sorry, at, you know, negotiation stages and, and share that with your team? Are you able to help pull an AE out of what is an inevitable rut that we have as sales professionals? You know, are you able to really boost that morale? So what's what's really wonderful is I have, I have a team of rock stars. We have a team of incredible um, AEs at Webflow that not only have tangible impacts um, on the business, but, but intangible ones as well. Mm, super, super interesting. And, um, and, and I wanted to understand you know, how, how would you motivate a, a sales rep, a sales team, you know, uh, when they're going through a rough patch, especially, you know, when, when they hear about, uh, you know, a lot of uh, firings which are happening in a big company, you know, there's a sense of fear which develops into 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 a revenue resource uh, guy at times. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's a good question. I think we've all been there. I think that's the thing I try to really sit in empathy with my team members when they're going through that. We've all been there. We've all had a tough quarter, you know, this, this career is such that you might, you know, inevitably, you know, you might have, there might be a layoff at the company, you know, there might be restructuring. Um, And so what I think there's, there's a couple of things top of mind. And I think when I talk to folks that are early in their sales career or growing their sales career, I talk about this mental resiliency and how important it is to, um, not ride the highs too highs so that you don't have to ride the lows too lows, right? It's amazing when you have this, you know, killer quarter, or you've hit 200%, um, but just to be able to stay balanced and continue controlling what you can control. And this is what I keep coming back to with my, with my team, right? When they're having a tough time is, are you, we talked about those inputs. Are you, you know, being really diligent about the pipeline that you have? Are you reaching out to, to as many prospective customers? Are you partnering really closely with your, your SDR or BDR to really be able to generate that new business? Um, and then really being able to offer up, you know, as a leader to be able to step back and say, okay, here's what I'm seeing. You know, I'm going to offer up some insight to you. I'm going to be a little bit more prescriptive. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that you're losing a lot of deals you know, after demo, because you're you're not able to do X, Y, Z to be able to pull it forward to the next stage and really be able to help guide with skills dev. So really showing them, hey, I'm here with you. I'm here to support you. Um, as long as you have the will to be successful and control what you can control, then, you know, you, you certainly have the ability of going with the business and, and had the opportunity of working with a lot of folks that maybe weren't quite hitting the mark and, and, you know, coming out number two, uh, you know, on the, on the whole Webflow sales team. So just super, super uh, grateful for that opportunity. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year 
on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. I want to understand, you know, what, what, are, what is the right way to compensate a sales rep? You know, lo- a lot of people talk about like uh, the base salary should be 50%, 50% should be commission. Uh, you know, Jason Lincoln has his own view, but, uh, but what do you think is the right way? I feel like I keep giving this answer. It's not a cop-out, I promise, but I think it depends, right? I really think it depends on the stage of company that you're at um, or sort of stage of growth that you're at. Um, if we're talking about like, you know, you've asked me a couple of times, like that zero to once, you're bringing on that very first salesperson. Um, yeah. You don't know what's working. You don't have a playbook for success. So doing 50-50 might be really tough, right? Because you're asking this individual to come in and and really figure out um, this, this sales motion, but half of their income is going to be based on something that they have completely unknown. And so, you know, early stages that maybe a 70-30 split or maybe entirely sort of an MBO to be able to work off of where they're getting a base salary because you're asking them to come and invest their time and their energy into figuring out a sales motion um, might be more effective. I think once you're, once you've kind of moved past those, you know, first couple hires and maybe you're moving off of what is a team quota versus individual quotas and you're starting to go on that scaled motion, um, it candidly becomes a function of your, your on-target earnings. So what is, oh, so your, your uh, on-target earnings are uh, um, a product of what your quota is. So when uh, we have an incredible, I would say this is not necessarily my area of expertise. I'm not a comp expert. We have an incredible revenue operations and finance team that work their magic to figure out, you know, what is our model for growth? What does that look like? And how do we, um, what, what are we expecting AEs to bring in? And then how do we effectively compensate that? It's usually a multiple. So it can be anywhere from kind of four to five X of, Hey, we want to see this much come in and and then we pay them kind of a portion of that. Oh, interesting. Got it. And, um, Oh, and then I think, Oh, just, I think the other thing to add, I think, which is really important as, um, especially in those early stages, but really, I think, you know, I think I mean, so everybody at the organization has a part in go-to-market motions, but, you know, especially those sales individuals that are on that front line, you know, either driving that revenue or collecting feedback to, to drive better and, and more revenue. Um, I think you know, equity is always something that should be a part of the equation um, and something that um, should be taken seriously and, and, and communicated really effectively to the, to the hire. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, it totally makes sense. You know, equity is, is really important uh, for for the sales guy. Yeah, and um, yeah, you know, I've I've worked in SaaS companies before, and you know, sometimes uh, you know, sales rep they they're looking to convert and they look at discounting uh, in trying to to close deals. Uh, and uh, you know, does does over discounting lead to positive outcomes, uh, or do you think that that devalues the the uh, the brand? Mm. It's a loaded question. I hope I hope my AEs or my managers aren't listening to this. Um, no, I hope they do. But um, listen, I think I think mature, and I think especially if you're if you're uh, building out an enterprise motion, enterprise buyers are are accustomed to discounting, right? It's something that they're going to expect if they're especially if you're engaged with procurement teams. I mean, this is something that I think is built into candidly a lot of pricing, but also into into deal cycles. Um, and I'm happy to kind of walk through some of the approaches that we take with our AEs of, you know, if we're getting to the place of, of discounting, what are the types of things that we can potentially ask for in return? Or as we're working through that sort of overall negotiation, what makes sense for both parties to land on? I think if we kind of rewind, 
if an AE does their job really well in discovery and understand, like deeply understands the pain a customer is going through and what it would mean to solve that problem and solve that problem now and construct a really solid business case, you're going to get to that final negotiation stage and you're going to get, whether it's a VP, a CFO, a VP of finance or procurement saying, hey, we, we need you know, 10%, 50%, 50% off, whatever. The AE with a lot of confidence can say, well, listen, we're solving a $2 million problem for you. And this is how we've you know, calculated that. This 100K investment or 50K investment or whatever the price of your product is, is a drop in the bucket. So help us understand, is this a win that yeah. you're looking to get? Or is this like a, but like really like, okay, like now let's tease out the, the budget and things like that. Um, so this is something that I come back to is like, let's make sure if I have an AE coming to me asking for a discount, it's like, why? <laughs> what is, what, why are we kind of doing this? Um, I think the other thing, I think it was Jeb Blount um, and Inked that wrote about this, just really interesting research and data that suggests that AEs that are close to or at their quota have a, yeah. a lower propensity to, to want a discount. And it's AEs that are needing to get to their quota or struggling to attain that they're, they're, they're candidly desperate. And they're like, oh, if I could just only get this deal and then I'm on the board. And that's where we see that discounting. And that's, I think, as a leadership group and, you know, um, just to be able to embed that that um, DNA into the field of we're not discounting because we just have to get these deals across the line, right? Let's make sure that we're bringing in the right the right kinds of deals. Um, and listen, at the end of the day, sometimes an AE or a business has to get to a number, and, and discounting is the, the candidly the way you, you get it. But um, I think being able to learn from that. So as you know, as a leader, if that's happening, I try to go back and and sort of do a bit of a deal synopsis of hey, did we have to get it here? Um, and I recently had a rep where we were discounting and and we ended up getting the deal across the line with some minor discounting, but just asked her after the fact, hey, was that required? Do we understand, you know, yes, it was end of quarter, we needed that deal in, but, you know, kind of the why behind it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got interesting. And, uh, but, you know, uh, I, I had worked with a, with, a, with a brilliant female founder and, and she once told me that, you know, uh, it's really difficult to find, uh, uh, you know, women in sales, a lot of uh uh, you know, people would want work in product or HR. Uh, fortunate enough to have Leslie Winnitz, uh, who who runs a sales builder company as well as Shruti Kapoor from Clary on the part. But you know, why do you think you know uh, there's less representation of women in sales, and, and what can be done to have more women uh, in sales? Or is that like a taboo for women? I don't know. No, it's a great question. I mean, it's something that I'm. I could, I could probably have a whole other hour with you to talk about this because it's, it's something that I've thought a lot about. I've researched quite a bit um, and uh, I'm super passionate about, which is why why I'm here, why I have my own leadership aspirations. I candidly want to be able to be that representation so that if a woman or a woman of color is you know evaluating a career in tech and figuring out how to get there, she can say, oh, you know, th- this person looks like me, therefore... You know, I could potentially be that because, you know, I think the landscape specifically in tech 10 years ago was candidly quite different. Um, And I think so I think what's great to see is not only at Webflow, who does a tremendous job with this, but even broader tech communities now, even versus five years ago, is the work that a lot of companies have done sort of on on many levels of diversity. I know we're talking specifically just about women, you know, versus men. And there's, there's a whole other, um, when we think of like overall gender, there's a a deeper level there, but, you know, specifically with women, um, 
you know, all the way from how we're looking to attract talent, that early stage candidate pool is super important. And so this is everything from outreach that might be done at at universities or colleges. This is the way and the language that a job uh, description is crafted can often hold a lot of bias. I mean, I think I think back to when I joined tech and it was a lot of, hey, come for beer pong Fridays or playing ping pong. And I don't love beer and I don't love sports candidly. And so when I read these job descriptions, you know, it was like, come be a warrior and crush deals. Like there was a lot of language in there that wasn't necessarily resonating with me. I was able to sort of look past it. And I candidly had a referral into my first job in, in tech sales, um, but actually funnily enough by another woman. Um, and so I think every, that is so critical because when you're bringing, if we look at an overall sales org, typically we see folks starting in the business as a BDR or an SDR. And if we're not being really thoughtful about what that team looks like, as we continue to have those individuals grow in the business, and then those people move into leadership, that's going to be you know really, really challenging. Um, funnily enough, there's a lot of data out there. I think Gong put out some really incredible data um, a couple of years ago that that some of the best sales performers are women. They know how to really, they know how to storytell really well. They know how to dig and be really curious and ask good questions. Um, and so I hope, uh, you know, I think we're really fortunate at Webflow. We have really great parity um, amongst, uh, specifically on, on men versus women. Um, but it's something that I'm continuing to, to focus on and, and invest in and just really wonderful to see um, us doing it really well and, and specifically across the market. Um, yeah. Mm, got it. And, and you talked about Webflow, you know, um, so, uh, you know, during these times, is Webflow still looking out for uh, for increasing the, you know, uh, headcount in sales? Um, are, are, are you guys still still growing? Yeah, we are. You know, I think um, there are market forces um, at play that we want to be really thoughtful about how we continue to grow. Uh, but our, you know, our business is growing. We're, we're really excited about how we can continue to, especially on the enterprise side, um, really help organizations, um, you know, do more with less specifically in this time, this economic time. And so certainly um, as, you know, good talent comes across uh, my inbox, I'm always, you know, willing to have a conversation and figure out um, if and when it's a fit for the company. Mm-hmm. Got, got interesting. And uh, Simna, I quick, quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yes. Okay. So there's um, a few and I have several on my bookshelf that I'm excited to read. But one that has been really top of mind for me is The Making of a Manager by Julie Zhu. Um, this is just an incredible book for someone who's entering their leadership career, mistakes not to make. And if you make the mistakes, how to recover. Um, so just a really brilliant book that i um, super grateful that I was able to read uh, uh, when I was making the transition. Um, yeah. I, there's a, a, several others, but I loved the challenger sale. It's, it's a way that I loved selling. So love that book for anyone who's interested in learning more about methodologies as well. Oh, okay. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started your sales career, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Mm. I think... There's a couple, well, there's a couple of things. I think one, I've talked about this a lot today is the importance of strong discovery. And I wish I would have invested more time um, there. I think I, I reflect back to a lot of the deals that I lost and I, I realized I lost them in that probably that first discovery call. So really, I think asking for more feedback, I think it's really easy as salespeople 
especially as, you know, as a woman of color who was really looking to make a mark at a company, I didn't want to ask for a lot of help. I didn't want to ask for a lot of feedback. Um, and so I think really being able to lean into asking your peers for feedback, prepping with peers that have done things really well um, is something that I would have, I, I wish I could tell myself, you know, 10 years ago. I think the other thing is, is around that mental resilience. Um, this is something that if you can really wrap your head around early, it's great. Um, but that, you know, you, you might have t- tougher quarters. You might have hit, you might be at a company that maybe just didn't work out and that's okay. There's a lot that you can learn from each of these experiences and kind of just roll with those punches and not let it sort of pull you off track too much. Um, is something I'd also tell myself. Well, awesome. And do you have a favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom, anything other than Webflow? Yes. Gong. Gong. It is like my number one tool. It was my number one favorite tool as an AE. It's my number one favorite tool as a manager. Um, to, to the point I made earlier, you know, being able to solicit feedback. I love being able to go in and listening to calls that my team members are doing, offer feedback. Um, as an AE, I loved sending calls to the top performing rep. Hey, like tear up this call. You know, what can we be doing? Um, and there's so much that you can do to really leverage Gong from um, the analytics that it provides. Um, as a manager, how I should be coaching my team based on, you know, insights that are coming out of it. So if you're not using Gong for anyone listening, try to invest in it, invest in it early because it's just such an incredible tool. Mm, got it, got it. We'll, we'll put it on the show notes. And um, Simon, what, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Webflow? Yeah, but please connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and my email is thimrin.dougal at webflow.com. So feel free to reach out. I'm happy to share more about Webflow, about myself, or just connect. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in our show notes. Simran, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.